Good morning, everybody. How are we doing today? All right. It's been hot in Northern Virginia, right? Like, it's been kind of warm. I hear it's coming back this week, so you got something to look forward to. Um, I don't know about you, but when I think about cooling off, like, I usually think about the pool, right? Like, and last weekend, we were supposed to get together with some friends and go to the pool, and one of them actually said it's too hot to go to the pool. Too hot to go to the That's the perfect place to be. What do you do to cool off? What do you guys do to cool off? You know, you think of going to the pool, maybe you go to the beach, you can't walk on the sand, but you can get in the water. So you want to live in the water during these hot days. You maybe sit in the air conditioner, get an ice, ice sickle, an ice pop, something like that to help cool you off. I can almost guarantee you that one place your mind did not go is a pond. Like nobody thinks, oh, I want to go dive into a pond and cool off, right? Although you could. Ponds can be very good. My family friend has a pond on his piece of property, and I've gone swimming in it in the past, and I was up there a couple weeks ago with Eli, my three-year-old, and he was like, let's go swimming. And if you've been around ponds a lot, you know when you look at them, like they're not very appetizing, right? Like usually there's something floating on the top. You see bugs kind of jumping all around. You see grass growing up through the edges. It just doesn't look refreshing. But if you jump in, It creates a ripple, and it kind of clears up all the stuff on top, right? And you kind of forget about it. But if you choose to stand up, or if you choose to walk into the pond, what do you experience? That muck kind of squeezes up between your toes, right? And it wraps around your ankles as you sink down in. And if you decide to walk, it's like, you know, as you pull your foot out and you set the next one down, it squeezes up again. It's just not very appealing. We don't think about ponds when we think about cooling off. We don't think about ponds because they're stagnant. They're not going anywhere. They're not moving anywhere. It's just kind of muck builds up after years and years of natural debris falling and decomposing in this thing, and it's flowing nowhere. Flowing nowhere. Usually we think about beaches or pools or possibly even creeks and streams because water is moving, and where water is moving, there is life. Something exciting is happening. So this morning, we're beginning a new series called A Life Worth Living and talking about getting movement to life. Because when life feels stuck, when we feel stagnant, when we feel like we've just kind of sunken down into the depths of a pond, when our life gets a little bit mucky, it's going nowhere. We feel like life doesn't have worth. You know, if you think about a relationship or a job, when you kind of get to that point where you're like, I'm making no progress anymore, what do we start doing? We get a little antsy, right? We start looking around saying, okay, where can I go next? How can I jumpstart this thing? Because it's not going anywhere. It's not worth my time or my effort. And so we're going to be talking about what things have worth this morning. So we're beginning a new series. We want to thank you guys for joining us today at West Falls Church. It's good to see you guys this morning. We're going to be talking about how to break this cycle of stagnation and feel like life has worth, but also that we're adding worth to things. There's a book that circulates in the Christian circle called Love and Respect. Anybody ever read the book Love and Respect? Like, this is a big Christian book. It's written by Dr. Agrish. It's honestly not my favorite, but, you know, it's okay. Um, There's three cycles in it that he talks about, and I'll give you the whole book in, like, 47 seconds, and I'm sure he's not going to be happy about it, but you'll get the whole thing right here. It's talking about romantic relationships, primarily marriages, And he begins talking about this crazy cycle. And if you've been married for more than a year, you automatically know what he's talking about, right? It's a crazy cycle where somebody does something and the other person interprets it negatively or does something back. And all of a sudden you find yourself kind of spiraling, spiraling into this sense of out of control, like we're not going the same way. We feel stuck. We get stuck in a rut where everything is interpreted and done negatively. And we get stuck in this crazy cycle. And his whole book 
is about how to break out of that cycle, to move from a crazy cycle to the next cycle, which is energizing cycle. This is where one person in the relationship decides, okay, I'm going to break this chain. I'm going to do something positive. I'm going to start giving my spouse the benefit of the doubt. I'm going to extend grace to them. I'm going to forgive them. I'm going to ask them to forgive me. And we start doing things that build positive momentum. The whole goal is getting to what's called a reward cycle, where now you guys are kind of lockstep. You're doing the things that are good for the relationship. You're valuing the relationship of everything else, and you're reaping the benefits of it. And the community is better. Your family is better. All this stuff. We have this progression from the crazy cycle hopefully getting into the energizing cycle that sets the trajectory for a reward cycle. We're going to be talking about cycles this morning because life goes in cycles. It's constantly going, and we feel stuck when we're not progressing out of a cycle or when that cycle is going nowhere. Um, We're going to be looking at the book of Colossians this morning. It's a letter that was written about 30 years after the life of Jesus by Paul, one of the most famous followers in church history. And he's writing to a group of people in what is now modern-day Turkey, trying to tell them that they're on the right path, that their life is going somewhere, that there's worth and value to what they're doing and what they're believing. And as I read this book over and over again, I see a cycle that emerges, a cycle that I believe is Paul's energizing cycle. And hopefully to help you remember it a little bit better, we're going to be talking about it over the next three weeks. I've tried to make it rhyme, so we'll, talk, we'll, we'll deal with that as we go. But it's no, grow, show. The cycle that we see in the book of Colossians over and over again, that jump starts faith that adds worth to life is no, grow, show. We have to know something about who we are and where we are going in order for life to feel worth it. And that knowledge, what we know, is supposed to produce growth within us. It's supposed to help us grow in a certain direction. And as that is happening, as we're building our knowledge, as we're growing, we're able to show that off or share that with somebody else because it's never enough to let it just live inside of us. It has to have an impact. If our knowledge is growing and we're growing as individuals, other people are able to see that. And that helps make life worth living. It's a cycle that Paul says will energize your life and energize your faith. No, grow, show. The challenge with faith that I feel, and I've seen this in my life, is we can often look at faith like it's a series of steps. It's a series of steps. And all we have to do is progress from one step to the next, and our life will be going in the right direction. Paul actually confronts that. Because these, this series, no, grow, show, is not a series of steps. As if I get all the knowledge you know, in a couple weeks or a couple months or I take a couple classes, then I progress to grow. Once I feel like I know it all, then I start growing. And once I've started growing and I know it all, then I can start to share or show. And Paul's saying, if you try it that way, you're going to be incredibly frustrated and defeated. Instead, this is a cycle. They're supposed to be happening at the same time, knowing, growing, and showing this idea that they all happen at the same time. And as you engage them, no matter where you are, life will take new shape. Life will take new energy, and it becomes powerful. It becomes very powerful. We're going to begin this morning in focusing on no, because that's where Paul begins. And knowing something can change everything, right? Like knowing something can change everything. My wife and I have been married for almost 12 years, 12 years in October. And when I found out 13 years ago that she liked me, like she called me up one day. It's great. I have the, the voice uh, memo saved, the voicemail that she left. She called me up. We'd met once, and she's called me up and said, hey, I want to get to know you a little bit more. 
Just a moment for me to share my own pride. Um, <laughs> want to get to know you a little bit more. I said, yes. That changed everything. Changed where I spent my time, my money, my focus. Everything about me changed because I knew something. Our office is over at Greenbrier. And sorry, this might you know, scare some of you or freak some of you guys out. We've seen mice at our offices at Greenbrier. Um, and knowing that there's mice in our office has changed my implementation of the five-second rule. Right? Like knowing that there's mice means that if food drops on the floor at this point, it's no longer a five second rule. It goes straight into the trash. Knowing something changes something. But too often, knowing something changes nothing. Knowing something changes nothing. Just this past Friday, we had a great day as a family with, uh, we have two children, but our, our newest born is like eight weeks, so he doesn't really add much, you know, sermon material yet. So, but our three-year-old, Eli, we had a great day with him, and we stayed up a little later than we should, and we had ice cream, we had this special meal, and all this fun stuff, we were out, and we got back late, and we got, he got to the point of being overtired, overtired, and every parent knows what that means, and if you're not a parent yet, um, this might scare you from becoming a parent, and despite his crying and screaming, I'm not tired over and over again, crying and screaming, I'm not tired over and over again at 8 p.m., I tried to reason with him. I tried to reason with him. And if you've ever tried reasoning with a tired three-year-old, it's like talking to a brick wall. Except the brick wall screams and falls down at times. <laughs> like, it just, nothing ever gets through. And I do it over and over again. No matter how eloquent I am, nothing gets through. And Joanne has to remind me of that. She came into the room Friday night and was like, you know, reasoning isn't going to work. You're not going to get through to him. And I just kept trying. Sometimes knowing something changes nothing. Sometimes knowing something changes nothing. Changes nothing about how we act or what we do. But Paul talks about a type of knowledge that is meant to change everything. A type of knowledge that is meant to change everything. So we're going to look at Colossians 1, verses 9 through 14 this morning, if you'll read along with me. For this reason, since the day I heard about you, you have not, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will, through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life that is worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of His holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Paul begins his letter to the Colossian church with a prayer that they would be and we would be filled with the knowledge of God and the knowledge of God's will more specifically so that we may live a life that is worthy. And these two go together, a life that is worthy and knowing God's will. And what Paul is saying is before you can live a worthy life, you have to know what path you are on. Before you live a worthy life, you have to know what direction you're heading, what path you are on. The word for live here in the Greek is peripatesi, which literally means to walk, to walk along. And in biblical terms, walking has to do with our lifestyle, our choices, our decisions, the direction that we're going and the identity that we carry with us, the things that make up who we are and how we view ourselves. That's what Paul's talking about. We have to know those things in order to be going to the right direction. Your identity, 
Who you are and the values that make up who you are determine the path that you're on. And to make sure you're on the right path, what Paul says is you have to know honestly and truthfully who you are and who you were created to be. Until we find this path, what the true path is, our life, who we are, our identity, we feel lost, stressed, and anxious. We have to anchor ourselves to something beyond ourselves so that the distractions of this world do not take us to a place that we never intended to go. Sometimes our decisions take us to a place that we never intended to go. But knowing God's will opens our our eyes to a new path. It opens our eyes to a new path. And I have to take a little sidestep here because knowing God's will, a lot of times what I thought or what I think is, okay, what house do I buy? Who do I marry? Who do I date? How many kids do I have? What job do I take? All these small questions. And I feel like a lot of times we get so focused on the small steps that we never look up to realize we're on the wrong path. And what Paul is saying is that there's a path that's built into the character and purpose of God. And once we lock onto the character and purpose of God, our path becomes clear, and that makes the smaller decisions easier to make. Gives us wisdom. Anthony Stanley, in a book he wrote called The Principle of the Path, says this, Direction, not intention, determines our destination. Direction determines destination. Where we're heading is ultimately where we're going to go. And a lot of times we have a destination in mind, but we're making all these kind of side decisions that are competing with that destination. So the direction determines destination. That's what Paul says in Colossians 1, 9, and 10. Paul says he's continually praying for us, continually asking God to fill us with the knowledge of his will so that we may live a worthy life and please him in every way. You have to know before you go. And for Paul, the destination is a worthy life. This sets the path and gets you going in the right direction. If we feel stagnant, we have to know the direction and the path that we're meant to take. We have to get moving at some point. And in order to break this cycle of stagnation, you have to know what life should look like. You have to know the goal of life, which is kind of what we're all searching for. What is this purpose? What is the meaning of life? Where am I going? And that's what Paul's letter talks about in this energizing cycle of no, grow, show. We're talking about no as this first week, and I feel like after having many conversations that we get stuck in this cycle two different ways. We get stuck in this phase of knowing when we're either cautious or conceited. Cautious or conceited, and here's what I mean. We get stuck in this field of knowing constantly searching for information when we feel cautious, like we don't know enough. We never know enough to move on. See, lack of knowledge is incredibly uncomfortable. Like nobody likes to walk into a room knowing that they're the person that knows the least amount of information, right? Like nobody likes that feeling. It's very humbling. It's very uncomfortable. Usually we're the opposite. We attach like all kinds of little uh, acronyms behind our name to let people know how much we know. We don't like walking in feeling like the outsider, the person that doesn't know. That's why it often takes a friend, right? If we're going to try out something new or try out a new activity or sport, it takes a friend to kind of pull us along a lot of times, to get us there, to make us feel comfortable, and to make sure that we're included, that we're not seen as knowing the least. That's why community groups are so important as we figure out our faith is we're all on this journey together. 
on this path, trying to understand who Jesus is and surrounding yourself with other people that are on the same path, that have the same destination in mind, is incredibly powerful for a growing faith, a faith that is not stagnant. I've had several people, uh, from Grace even, come up to me trying to figure out if they know enough to have faith, as if there's a quantifiable threshold. If I just study enough, if I get to this point, at what point is the tipping point that all of a sudden I know I've got faith? I know enough now to render a judgment, and I know I have faith, and the scales like fall on one side or the other. What we see in Scripture over and over again is something powerful. If we look at Jesus' life, he does something awesome. For Jesus, there's no minimum threshold of knowledge, which is bizarre. Like, he walks up to his disciples. They're working in the workplace. They're fishing. They know nothing about him. And he says, all right, guys, come follow me. Check this out. They didn't know a doctrine. They didn't know a belief statement. They didn't know theology. They didn't know his background. But they looked at him, and they said, this guy seems interesting. Something about him intrigued them. His life seemed to be on the right path. Looking at Jesus, they said, he looks like he's living a pretty cool life. His life seems to be on the right path. He seems to be going the right direction. Let's follow him and see if what he has to say is true. Maybe we'll find the right path for ourselves. Maybe we'll find the right path for ourselves. And that's an incredible place to start when it comes to faith. I don't know enough. The cool thing is, is we're called to follow before we know. And as we follow... We get bits of knowledge. We get to know him through the process. The risk is that we can come to church Sunday after Sunday. We can go to classes. We can even go to seminary, studying all the information, realize that it never has a difference in our lives. And that's a fearful place to be in. That's why faith often feels cheap. It's because we're searching for knowledge. We want that tipping point where something will all of a sudden click and make sense. But we need to apply what little bit of knowledge we have. We need to search, follow, and realize that his information, that what's in Scripture, what we talk about Sunday after Sunday, is reliable and practical. It's reliable and practical. And until we get to that point of giving it a test drive, trying it out, walking the path, it will never take root. It will never seem worth it. The second thing is conceited. So we have cautious and we have conceited. Nobody likes to be called conceited. So none of you guys here are conceited, but I want to talk about what I mean by that word. I had to have two C's, so that's what I came up with, cautious and conceited. What I mean is I already know that. I already know that. Some of the most frustrating moments in my marriage, do you guys want to know? You want to know some of the most frustrating parts of my marriage? It's when I plan out a conversation in my head with my spouse. So if you're married, you've likely done this, or if you've been in a relationship, you've likely done this. I've got this big thing I want to do, and I want it to go just right. I want, it to, I want them to get the sense of what I'm trying to say. I want them to get my heart. I want them to change. I want them to do something. And so I start planning out the conversation in my head. I've got my script, and the exciting part is where the frustration comes in is I also write her script. I write her script, but I don't really give it to her. And what do you think would happen if I did give it to her? All right, let's not go there. Um, It doesn't go well because I've written out her script. I already know what I think she should say or should do. And in my mind, the script that I've written for her is really the best script, right? Thank you. It's really the best script. It makes the most sense. It's logical and it complies with what I'm trying to say. And what I'm really communicating to her when I get in that mode is I know you. And when I know somebody... I've locked them in a box and I have control over them. 
And nobody likes that feeling. Have you ever done that with God? Know how he's going to act. I've kind of locked him in a box and said, that's a God I don't like, or this is the God that I do like. This is the God that I want. This is who he is. And we kind of neglect that he's a dynamic individual. Here's the rub. If you've been in church a while, maybe, you know, you don't believe you're not a follower of Jesus. Maybe this doesn't apply to you. But here's the rub. It's easy to prioritize information about Jesus over actually knowing him. Prioritizing information over Jesus. John 5, 39, verse 40. We won't read it this morning. But Jesus gets into this argument with a bunch of religious people. And they are super smart. Like, they are top-notch. They are respected by everybody in the community. They are the best people when it comes to Scripture. And Jesus says, you study the Scriptures diligently. You examine them all the time. But you miss the path that leads to life. You study them all the time. You know God the better than anybody else, but you miss the path to life. When we hear or read something over and over again, if you've been in church for a while or a number of years, and you've been studying and reading, you know that the more that you read and the more sermons you hear, something in your brain triggers when you've heard something familiar, right? Something in your brain triggers, you're like, oh yeah, I've heard that. Or I've read that before. And reality is our brains go into conservation mode. When we feel like we've heard or read something before, our brains go into conservation mode. They want to save energy. It's a very efficient brain. It's a little lazy, but it's very efficient. They want to save energy. And what that does is once we've read or heard something over and over again, our brains start checking out. We can get to that point where we feel like, oh yeah, I know that. I've heard that before. I know that. And instead, we need to move from examining just examining scripture to examining ourselves. If you feel stagnant in faith, maybe you've been following Jesus for a while and things feel stagnant, we need to move from examining, just examining scripture to examining ourselves because something powerful happens when we do that. If you think back to the beginning of your faith, if you're a believer, if you're following Jesus, think back to the beginning of faith. Most exciting time was when it felt new, right? You were confronted with God's grace and his love in a powerful way confronted with it. What happens over time is we begin to elevate the knowledge of God and kind of forget the grace and the love part of God. And the only way to get back to doing that is to examine ourselves again and realize that there's an amazing gap between knowing and what we're doing. And once we realize that there's a gap between knowing and doing, what do you think happens? We're brought back face to face with the grace of God. God, how can you love me? I keep struggling. I keep falling short. And we're brought back into the grace of God. And that jump starts faith all over again. We need to move from simply reading, asking of a passage, reading and saying, okay, what does this passage teach me about God? What does it teach me about God? We need to move from just asking that question to what does this passage say about who I am? What is the identity it's advocating for in there? Is there a challenge that is for me? And if there is a challenge in there, if there's a gap between knowing and doing, what is my response? What am I to do with this? And as we engage in those questions, we all of a sudden pull our feet up out of that muck and life starts moving again. Faith starts moving again. It no longer feels stagnant. This places us firmly back on the path between cautious or conceited, asking these questions, digging in a little bit deeper, 
doing something new, approaching it from a different angle, brings new momentum and sheds light on the path. Jesus is so integral for this part. He's so integral for this. Uh, we can't read the rest of Colossians 1. I encourage you to go home and read Colossians 1, uh, specifically verses 15 through 23. It's an amazing picture of who Jesus is, but also who he's created you to be. Who he has created you to be. I want to read one line from Colossians 1.15. Speaking of Jesus. Jesus is the son. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. We don't use firstborn language very much. It's very common in their day, in ancient Israel even, in Greek tradition. Very, very common. What Paul is saying is Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. Jesus is the original. He's the original. He's the archetype. No one was before him. Everyone is created to live and experience life like him. That's what Paul is saying. Everyone. You are created to live and experience the life way that Jesus did. He is the original mold. He is the pattern and the template for life. If you study his life, I believe like the disciples did, you're left with a feeling of, I want a life like that. I want a life like that. Or that's the way life is meant to be lived. It triggers something within me that says that's who I am supposed to be. That's the way my relationships are supposed to be. That's the impact I want to have. That's the difference I want to make. That's the peace I've been longing for. That's the confidence I've been searching for. Looking at Jesus' life sparks everything. It gets movement into your life, into your faith, into your relationships again. So we have to know something. See, Jesus represents a new path, one that you were created for. It's based on a new identity that Paul calls Christ in you, Christ living inside of you, being your life, being your direction. The reality is, is our old identity, the way that we used to understand ourselves, the way that we knew ourselves, easily sabotages our plans to reach our desired destination. Our old life, our old decisions, our old habits sabotage our destination. Knowing your new identity leads you away from destructive relationships. It changes the course of your life. And it brings healing. It's incredibly freeing. In Paul's words, the grace of God, the mystery of God, rescues us from a dark path and puts us back on a path that is full of light and life. Some of us this morning feel stuck, still feel stagnant because either maybe we feel like we don't know enough to get started, we don't know enough to jump in, or you're sitting here going, I've heard all this before. It's nothing new. There's an author in the Bible that says there's nothing new under the sun. That's the way our brains think a lot of times. Our faith can feel. There's nothing new. We're either cautious or conceited. The beginning point is determining your desired destination, where you want to reach. If you want to experience a life worth living, you need to change paths. You need to try following, not just learning. Or maybe you need to move from examining Scripture to examining yourself. As you honestly examine yourself and discover the gaps between knowing and doing, be reminded that the grace of and love of God brings those two things together and brings forgiveness and healing and hope and restoration in a powerful way. Jesus doesn't look at the gap between the two and says, shame on you. He says, I know about that gap between knowing and doing. I know all about it. And I love you just the same. And I welcome you in. And that jump starts our faith once again. We're going to be taking communion this morning. And I'm going to ask the communion team to go ahead and get in place as we prepare.
Uh, worship team's also going to come out as we take communion. They're going to take communion at West Falls Church. And if you're all watching online, feel free to celebrate with us. Communion is one way that shakes us out of a stagnant life. The night that Jesus institutes communion, which stood for a real meal, Passover meal in his day, he was surrounded by disciples, people who followed him. Many of them felt like they knew it all already. They were actually telling Jesus how to live his life. Felt like they knew it all. And there were those there that didn't feel like they knew anything. They couldn't even trust Jesus. And Jesus in this moment, in this meal, what this meal symbolizes is that he's laying out a new path. The way that we used to live, the way that we used to believe, the way we used to think has changed. And all of a sudden, something new is happening. He's walking the path ahead of us, clearing the way for us so that we can experience the life that we were always created to live. It's a life worth living. It reveals the depth of his love and his grace and his selflessness. The team's going to begin passing out the elements at West Falls Church. Pastor John, you're going to take the, the lead over there. And as people are served, I ask you to hold on to the elements. And once everybody's been served, we'll come back together and partake. Jesus comes onto the scene halfway through history. And Judaism has been around for 2,000 years by the time Jesus comes on the scene. And he comes in in one night says there's a new path to take. He doesn't separate from the old path. He doesn't say all of scripture and that God that you knew was wrong. But he comes on and he says, so what you guys have been doing with your knowledge, the path that you've been on, the direction that you've been taking, no longer reads the destination that you wanted. You've made decisions along the way that are taking you places you never wanted to go. And he looks at the law and the religious leaders and he says, you guys have missed the point of life. And he does that through a meal. He says, there's a new path for you. I want to show you the path. And, and Jesus takes this meal and with those around his table. Some would betray him. Some would walk, along, walk away from him. And he looks and he says, you. You are the ones I love. And I'm going to show you what this path looks like over the next couple of days. And over the next couple of days, he would selflessly give of himself. He would demonstrate his love his power, his courage. And he would say, this is the way you were meant to live, selflessly giving of yourself, loving in an endless manner, forgiving and extending grace. And that's what he does through this meal. As we take this meal, it's a reminder that not even death itself, his body and his blood, not even death itself could separate him from you. No matter how big the gap is from knowing and doing, no matter how little or how much you know, Nothing could separate you from his love. So let's take and eat the body together, the bread. On the night he was betrayed, he actually took the cup and said, this is my body and my blood which is poured out for you. It marks a new path, a new covenant. Let's take and drink. If you'll pray with me this morning. God, I admit sometimes life feels stuck, stagnant. Like faith isn't moving, like relationships aren't moving in the right direction, like my family is stalled out, like my career is stuck. I pray that you would help me to know my true identity and the character and purposes that you've called me to. I pray in this room that somebody might find a new path this morning.
they might look at their life and say, something needs to change, something needs to be different. And that in that moment, they might encounter your grace and your love. We thank you for all your goodness and how you walk through life with us. You don't leave us on the path alone, but you carve it out and you put light on the path that we might see. I pray that would happen this morning in your name. Amen.